whole football book is doing. Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, and all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo, Sam Monson here. Talking all things best players in the NFL. That's right. It is. It's still list season. So that means it's PFF 50 season, which means Sam, you've made a list and I'm sure the people are very happy with it. And they agree with everything that you've put out so far, the PFF 50. Yeah, it sounds, sounds likely. Um, people always, you know, agree top to bottom with these types of lists. Well, let's get into the methodology and everything here. Remember, we kind of put out two lists, right? We do a PFF 101 at the end of the season, which is just season-based, right? You just look back, and the, the most recent list was just ranking the players, 101 players for the 2021 season. The PFF 50 is our attempt at looking forward and not taking positional value into account. So we're not just looking at the, the best eight quarterbacks at the top of the list here. The best players that we think, you know, based off the history, not just last year, but the history of how they've played, who are the best players going into 2022? Yeah. No fullbacks. No fullbacks, no. Um, yeah, it, it, it's essentially, it's the thing that everybody always uses PFF grades to try and achieve, but they don't, you know, which is how good is a player right now, right? If you had a game tomorrow, how good is that player in abstract, in in a vacuum, which is not what PFF grades actually do. They're, they're a measure of past performance that you can use to project future performance and all those kinds of things. But this list is actually what that is. It is the top 50 players in the NFL right now, if all of them suited up tomorrow. Uh, one, so let's before we get into it, let's just a couple programming notes here, Sam. So keep the bets coming in. The bets that you guys are presenting to us. Some are good. A lot are good. Mm. You know, some are like, ah, you know, I don't, again, we have to kind of be passionate on the other side, right? I mean, it's got to be taken. Steve and Sam or one or both really believe this one thing. I believe the opposite. Let's put something on the line. Keep sending those in. I think Sam, I thought we were just going to like take a couple bets here and there, but this thing's really taken off. We do really need to dedicate an entire show to it. So we're going to do that. At some point in August, in August, prior to the season, we'll accumulate all the bets that we are going to accept or reject. We'll, we'll make a list, and we'll have one entire show where you guys and your wagers uh, will accept them or decline them on the air. So keep those coming. Um, also, I do want to uh, have a show uh, potentially next week answering one question for every from every fan base. We've already had a few come in. So when you email us, uh, NFL podcast at pff.com put question for team X in the title. It'll help us organize those, but we'll do one question per team, you know, per fan base burning questions, Sam, for the season. So be sure to, to, uh, to send those in. Yeah. 
the sooner the better on those ones so we can actually populate that and get that that show sketched out all right sounds good and like i said keep those keep those bets coming any any other uh, housekeeping items here no, we actually need, once you're back in the vicinity, you know, in the area, we actually need to get on with the latest charity thing, the uh, Can Sam or Cam Sam, Can Sam not pitch 60 miles an hour. How are we going to, where's the, what, what are we doing for the charity there? How are we going to work this? TBD. All right. So we're going to be doing that soon. We got to do it before winter this yes, time, right? Again. So before the, before Thanksgiving when I was pitching that, I mean, that was why my velocity was down. Thanksgiving. It was like out of baseball season. So mm. we want to make sure we're in season for you over here, Sam. You think that you add some heat to the uh heat to the the atmosphere and you that seventy five becomes eighty five? Sure. Yeah, yeah. In the summer for sure. Okay. Plus on the West Coast, the thin air of the West Coast, I threw much harder. That mm. always helps too. We should do it out. So what we out need to like go Vegas is to go to something. like we need to go to Denver in the summer and then try yeah. it again. That's correct. Okay. It's tough to breathe there, but the ball goes faster, moves all over the place. I mean, you don't uh, but if you connect far. with it, it flies. So, you know, it's a, it's a balance there. <laughs> okay. All right, man, let's get into it. PFF 50. Uh, let me start with this. Has we, We've revealed the top 40 so far. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I believe so. On PFF.com. So this is exclusive here. PFF NFL podcast. You're going to get the top 10. Um has there been pushback yet as you've tweeted this out has, has there been a certain place where there's been pushback so far from fans players that you're missing or too high or too low on no usually it, it it's the guys that are missing um i know last year we took no end of craft for lamar jackson not being on the 50 um i remember you go back he was not year. a top 50 player in the in the league last year anyway so right well exactly it ends up being proven correct after last year but if you head into the season you know, he was coming off a year that wasn't as as amazing. Um, and the, the kind of the first level set for all this, right, is if you're in the top 50 players in the NFL, you're an incredible player. Like, nobody on this list is a bad player. Um, in fact, everybody on this list is a great player. And con- consequently, there are great players that aren't on this list because they just miss out. Um, so Lamar Jackson coming off a season that wasn't quite as incredible as the year as his unanimous MVP season, it's like, ah, I don't know if Lamar really belongs on this list. And he he was the sort of just missed out kind of cut last year. People lost their minds. And then he has, you know, not a good year at all uh, between play and then getting injured and obviously missing a big chunk of time. But even when he was on the field, he wasn't playing at the same kind of level that we've been accustomed to seeing from Lamar Jackson. So, you know, that those are the kind of guys that tend to create the most controversy is players that miss miss the list entirely uh and i know you and i both do a lot of uh radio hits around the nation and all that stuff after these types of lists come out right and a lot of people at pff do and a lot of the questions we get are are you telling me that you would take uh adrian amos over justin herbert if you were starting a team it's like no we would not we would absolutely not do that Um, again we're trying to isolate uh, all positions rather than just the quarterback and and kind of create all uh, let all creations uh, positions be created equal that's what i was trying to say so no we would not necessarily take uh random guard over joe burrow uh to start a team right, right. that would never be the case but you're right these these are the best players yeah with in the, the nfl with the exception of special teams and you know fullbacks where they just don't play enough to justify it yeah. this is a list where all positions are created equal 
Um, are there any players that did miss the list that you want to highlight then? Because Lamar's not on it again. Um, where who who missed the cut, right? Who are the guys as we're putting this list together? Do you feel were you know the the biggest you know just misses or guys that you wish kind of you know could have could have squeezed into the top fifty? I think you could make an argument that uh, Rayshon Slater should be on the list even after that even after year one, um, you know, incredible season from him, a, a guy that was thrown into the fire for the Chargers at left tackle, had to block Miles Garrett, you know, very early on, those kinds of things. Um, and he was right there. Ryan Ramchek as well, veteran right tackle, has been consistently one of the best right tackles in the NFL for years, um, I think is, is right on the cusp as well. And then the one that I think probably has the strongest argument is Creed Humphrey. Um Again, another insane rookie season for Kansas City last season at center. And he was the best graded center in the NFL. Um, and, and from on that evidence, obviously does deserve to be on this list. But it, it sort of feels like one where because he was coming from, you know, a, a, a mid-second round pick, it's like, or a low second round pick, like we want to see it again, you know, rather than just assume that Creed Humphrey is the best center in the NFL at a position that, you know, does fluctuate a little bit. Let's let's just tap the brakes a little bit and make him back it up before we're throwing him right on the list. Whereas, uh, you know, other rookies will make the list like a Micah Parsons or a Jamar Chase, you know, guys that um, we saw do it at that high level in college and it transferred directly to the NFL, right? Yeah, and as Smooth much as... transition, and they were elite players. Like, Creed Humphrey was the best-graded center in the NFL. You can draw a parallel to that and, and what Micah Parsons did and say, well, what's the difference? And I think that the way that... You know, you can come in and you can grade well as a center, and that's not that unbelievable. To do what Micah Parsons did is unique like we haven't seen that maybe ever like certainly you got to go back a long time to find any kind of comparable immediate impact player that did it in as many different ways as Micah Parsons did as a rookie so I think that is a separator from a guy who just comes in and sort of grades well conventionally as a center on one of the best offensive lines in the NFL so I think there is a difference between those two even if you can sort of draw a fairly close parallel between them and 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 ask what the justification is for one to be on and the other not. The best place to play fantasy football this summer, it's Underdog Fantasy. Their best ball mania tournament has $10 million in total prize money. And the best part is you just draft your fantasy football team and that's it. There's no waivers, no trades, no in-season management. Underdog gives you your best score each week of the season and the highest scores at the end of the year win. The champion of best ball mania drafted last summer. So there's no time like the present to join Underdog and take your shot at a million-dollar draft. Plus, Underdog is going to double your first deposit up to $100 when you sign up with the promo code PFF. Also, if you play 10 of those dollars using promo code PFF, you get a free PFF subscription. So what are you waiting for? Head to underdogfantasy.com or the App Store, play $10 with code PFF, and draft your best ball mania team today only at Underdog Fantasy. All right, Sam, do you want to go? You want to count down here? The top, uh, we'll start with some, we'll highlight some players in the 40s here. Okay. The 40s and in, uh, in 50. Um, for me, uh, it was it was not surprising. I mean, last year at this time, it would have been surprising to see Rashawn Gary hmm. at 49 for the Green Bay Packers and then another edge defender, Max Crosby, at, at number 50. Two guys who just had a massive breakout last season. 
uh, both guys, incredible athletes coming out. And, and we, as we've talked about quite a bit, we were a little bit lower on Gary, certainly than you know, his getting picked in the top 15. So seeing the athletic profile start to catch up, right. And start to show up on the field for Rashawn Gary, believe it or not, it's actually similar for Max Crosby. He was an incredible athlete coming out as well, but just didn't get drafted in the first round. But we see both guys really take massive step forward, uh, steps forward in their respective careers. Rashawn Gary and Max Crosby making their debuts in the PFF 50. Yeah. And the, the kind of the end, the, the tail end of this list is very much an edge rusher <laughs> haven. Um, and these two guys, I think, are kind of difficult to figure out exactly where to slot them because of what we're talking about. So Gary broke out this year. Um, you know, Zadarius Smith missed almost the entire season for Green Bay. Rashawn Gary was essentially the guy as a pass rusher for them and just kept getting better. Like, obviously, was uh, was playing at a different level than he's played in the past. But even within the year, was getting better as the season wore on. So... To have him ranked above Max Crosby, who Crosby just finished the season as one of the best graded edge rushers, uh, topped 100 pressures. One, I think three guys have ever done that in the PFF system over the course of a season. So you, you look at that and you would say, well, Crosby obviously should be ranked ahead of Gary. But the fact that Gary was getting better, you know, all the way through the season, including into the playoffs. Um, again, this is a sort of forward looking list. And then the other thing that works against Crosby is he really did lead a charmed existence in terms of the players he was going up against, right? That you just look at the, the names of right tackles that were blocking him over the course of the year. And it's incredible how many bad players there were now to his credit, when he faced better players, he still played well, right? He went up against Lane Johnson, and the Eagles and made some plays. So you can only beat what's in front of you, but it does make you question at least you know, what happens next year when he faces a better run of right tackles? Can he still do the same thing? I think that that's the only thing that's keeping him that low. A bunch of the players in the 40s here, uh, it, it's it's an interesting combination of, you know, maybe so, you know, a guy like Khalil Mack, right? An edge defender that's now with the Los Angeles Chargers, who has always been a perennial top 10 guy, right? There was a point when we were putting this list together where every single year we had to figure out Khalil Mack or Von Miller, you know, who is right. the guy that we want to put. And, and it, I think they went back and forth. If you go back and look at the history one was seven, one was eight, they'd flip the next year. So Khalil Mack regressed a little bit, but we still have him in the top 50 guy like Cameron Jordan, another guy who's just been incredibly consistent for the New Orleans saints at edge. Um, but then you have players like our friend Darius Leonard coming the other way, right? It was just a couple years ago. He didn't make our top 50, uh, or even our PFF 101 at the end of the season, he was very upset. We had him on the yeah. show in Indy at the Combine. He's a friend of the show, in air quotes, because he wasn't happy that he uh, that he didn't make the list. But um, he's still probably not going to be happy that he's number 43, but at least he's getting better. And, you know, we've got at least something to offer him here. <laughs> yeah, but again, like, you know, you just, okay, you'd be mad because he's number 43 in a list of all the players in the NFL. But, like, just look at the guys around him, and it shows you how hard that is to achieve. Like, Tyron Smith, Jamar Chase, Darius Leonard, Nick Chubb. These are some of the very best players in the NFL. There's 22 starters in every single team. Like, to make it to the top 43 of all 32 teams in the NFL, it's insanely hard to do, and you're going to get incredible players ranking in this kind of range. It isn't an insult. 
Uh, then you have uh, other similar to Khalil Mack. You have a guy like Tyron Smith who um, is still awesome when he's out there. It's, it's always been an injury question with Tyron Smith. Uh, if he had stayed healthy over the last five or six years, maybe he's one of those guys that stays in the top 10, right? Is up in that Trent Williams type of type of realm as far as tackle goes. Well, Tyron Smith last year was sort of quietly one of the more interesting stories that really wasn't talked about that much. He ended up finished the year. So, you know, the 2020 plays like 150 snaps, barely sees the field, right? So at this point, you essentially have to budget in the idea that Tyron Smith is going to miss a couple of games here or there with injury. Um, But even so, the last few years before that, 2017, 18, 19, it was all, the story was like, you know, if Tyron Smith could just get healthy and we get back to being that dominant player and, you know, crazy performance, he'd be the best tackle in the NFL. He'd be right there with Trent Williams. But, man, these injuries are just taking their toll and he's not quite the player that he used to be. And then 2020, he misses almost the entire year. Last season, though, he played and he was at that level that he was at before the injuries. And okay, he still got injured. He still missed some time. But when he was actually playing, it was the old Tyron Smith again. So he finished the season with a a PFF grade above 90. That was the first time he'd been over 90 since 2015. Like, that's a huge period of time. That's a career for most players in the NFL. That was the last time he'd played at this kind of level. So for Tyron Smith to just sort of flip the switch again and be that guy that we hadn't seen for half a decade is kind of crazy. And I don't think something that most people thought was realistically on the cards any or in the cards anymore. I mean, isn't that a lot of what we're just seeing at tackle that um, age is just a number, right? I mean, you, at, at other positions you see – sharper regression you know cornerbacks it's a little bit harder to maintain that great level of play receiver guys just kind of lose a step you know the julio jones of the world the andre johnson's of the world they just become completely different players maybe at the end of their career but we're starting to see andrew whitworth play into his 40s and jason peters in his 40s reportedly wants to keep playing and they're they're still reasonable players we see trent williams rejuvenated over the last couple years and tyron smith able to bounce back so impressive run by a, a bunch of tackles who have had excellent careers and um, and still able to do it, right, even as they get uh, a little bit older or after years of dealing with injuries. Yeah, um, but, but the thing with Tyron Smith is that it was like the, the concern wasn't age at that point, right? It was just like he's got so many injuries in the rearview mirror and so much sort of deterioration physically that, like, he's just never going to be that guy again. And then all of a sudden he was like, he still got injured, but when he was playing, he was actually back to being as good as any tackle in the league. All right. The other guys I want to highlight here in the forties, Jamar chase the receiver from the Bengals comes in at 42, just a, a little bit below Stefan Diggs, number 39 for the Buffalo bills. We've talked a lot about wide receiver one man. And, and, and as I was thinking about our last episode and, uh, we've we've discussed this this entire offseason. These are two examples, right? These are two guys who came in and helped transform their respective offenses, right? Stephon Diggs in Buffalo, it, his the addition of Diggs coincided with Josh Allen becoming an elite quarterback over the last two years, right? Doesn't take anything away from Josh Allen, but the fact that Stephon Diggs came in and was able to do it all, win at every level of the field has been a huge part there. And same thing with the Bengals and Jamar Chase, right? Joe Burrow takes that big step forward in year two. His old friend Jamar Chase comes in, and that offense is completely transformed despite having 
one of the worst pass blocking offensive lines in the league. Again, going back to this wide receiver one discussion, Diggs and Chase are two examples of guys who did have that immediate impact and offenses went from good, pretty good to one of the best in the league. Well, I, I think that Chase is the, like the best example you could ask for, for the impact of what that has, even just beyond, you know, that number one guy, because you rewind and so now we're talking about the Cincinnati Bengals have the best trio of wide receivers in the NFL, right? You've got Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. That's as good as it gets. Nobody can match up with that. Dallas last year, but this year they you know they traded away Amari Cooper. It's not the same. So right now, I don't think there's anybody that can compare with that trio. But you take Jamar Chase off that, and a year ago we were like, I mean, the wide receiver is a problem spot for the Bengals. It's like, yeah, you know, T. Higgins is is a fine player. He doesn't look like he's going to be that number one guy. Tyler Boyd is a compliment. There's no number one. Like, this is a, a wide receiver group missing a superstar. So he go he transforms this this team from being a a weakness, a relative weakness on on offense. It's like, ah, that group's just not good enough for Joe Burrow to do what he needs to do to like this is the best trio in the league like that is the kind of impact that that number one can have and then you look at the season that T Higgins had like particularly in the second half of the year once people realized that Jamar Chase was like a one-man you know dynamo a guy that was going to completely torture defense the second half of the season was where T Higgins started to get all of those targets because teams were dedicating all of the resources towards Jamar Chase yeah, and it goes back to that strategy of that's the goal, right? I mean, getting to, to three ridiculous weapons, so or, or very good weapons, right? So that if you do take one away, there are other options. And yeah, T. Higgins certainly benefited from Jamar Chase coming in and and just the fact that Chase had games early where he took over. And it, remember all year, Sam, we're like, man, it's tough to tough to peg what's happened with Jamar Chase. Sometimes he dominates, sometimes he kind of disappears. Um, there was certainly far more good than bad, but the Bengals have those other options, even CJ Azama working in the middle of the field last year, they did a really nice job of letting the other weapons do work too when Jamar Chase was taken out of a game. But that's why he's on this list too, because he could produce and produce for others. I think Diggs has those same qualities, qualities with the Bills. Uh, the entire Josh Allen, uh, Josh Allen's last two years, he's had a, just a good, well-rounded group of receivers. And, and, and it starts with Stephon Diggs being able to do it all. Um, one of those guys who just win. We always talk about contested catch guys like, oh, we want a big bodied six, three guy, right? Stefan Diggs is one of the best in the league at winning at the catch point, even though he doesn't have one of those massive body types. Yeah. I mean, Diggs is really just great at everything, despite, you know, a relative lack of prototypical size. Um, he, I, I think because of that, he gets overlooked a little bit relative to some of these other guys, um, but he's just been consistently so good since coming into the league and has been entirely justified in terms of wanting to get out of Minnesota and get a larger you know, opportunity base in Buffalo, and it's, he's been phenomenal since he's got that. Other players in the 30s, you got Tristan Wirfs, the right tackle for the Tampa Bay Bucks. You have Bucks teammate Vita Vea at number 36. We, when you look at Vea, I think you – Eagles fans are looking at Vita Vea and saying, Hey, that's what we want from Jordan Davis. That's the, that's the goal with Jordan Davis, a guy that uh, isn't going to put up a even just ridiculous pressure numbers or, pre or ridiculous, uh, you know, sack totals or anything like that, but enough, right. Enough pressure, but also that ability to just make everybody around them better. I think Vea has got that as far as the Bucks defense, because he's just, 
he's just massive and he's tough to block and you could just do do a lot when you move him around the uh, the defensive line yeah Vey is a fun player because you know the in the nfl we talked about this before like the difference between college and the nfl in the nfl everybody is a freak athlete and you know a monster and, and all those kinds of things it's funny when you see players that come along and in a landscape of freak athletes and giant humans and monstrous physical specimens, they stand out. And, and that's what Vita Vea does. Like, there's a bunch of these plays where you watch some of his best plays. It's like he just completely physically overwhelms the dude trying to block him. And these are, you know, professional offensive linemen that do this on a weekly basis. And then a guy comes along and you're like, oh, I, I, there's nothing I do about that. Like, I... I don't have that in the that's not a club I have in the bag, you know, to just be able to anchor against a guy who's 350 pounds moving like a cat on the defensive line. Like if he does that, I have no answer. Like that is literally not within my range of capabilities to stop that. And for a guy to just show up with that skill set every now and again is just so crazy to watch. It's like, you know, he's a defensive tackle version of Randy Moss in terms of there were plays where, you know, it's not like cornerbacks are going out there on a weekly basis and never dealing with great receivers. But Randy Moss would do stuff where you were like, I, there's, I, I don't have an answer to that. Like, that's literally just something that I cannot contend with. You're going to have to find, like, a schematic wrinkle to address that because physically, I, I don't have it. Uh, the Staying in the 30s again here, you have guys like DeAndre Hopkins, uh he's he might be a risky one as we rank him here he's still very good sam but he's missing the first six games of the season uh we're not necessarily factoring that in when we're talking about the best players but there are those younger receivers on his heels right but let's just remind people how good deandre hopkins has been throughout his career he was before deshaun watson got to houston hopkins was the guy that kept producing despite having what brandon whedon and Ryan Mallet and, uh, you know, one year of Ryan Fitzpatrick, I think. I mean, he just had all, just this revolving door of below-average quarterbacks. Sorry, Fitz, um, at the time. Below-average quarterbacks, but you're just like, hey, Hopkins keeps producing. And then when Deshaun Watson gets there, he is the guy that Watson's relying on. And then he goes to Arizona, and the Arizona offense takes off, right? Another example of uh, maybe you pair it with Kyler Murray's development and other stuff, but – you can't deny the fact that Arizona's offense, when when Nuke Hopkins gets there in 2020, it's completely different. And, you know, that's – so he's still very, very good, even though I think you've got, you know, flashier players like A.J. Brown and Jamar Chase, uh, you know, on his heels. We can't deny what DeAndre Hopkins has done from a production standpoint throughout his career. Yeah, I, I find it difficult to rank DeAndre Hopkins. And I think in this world of recency bias and what was the last thing you saw um, – you immediately want to rank him low because of the season he's coming off and the fact that he is suspended. But, you know, when you look at the body of work before that, it's insane how consistent and how good he was for, you know, like a six or seven year stretch with generally bad quarterback play for most of that. Um, And then he go, you know, and we saw it with a different team in Arizona as well. So it's not like you can, somehow just describe it to what he was doing in Houston. We saw it in Arizona as well. And then half the season last year, he wasn't as good. And even then, he scored like eight touchdowns in 10 games or whatever. So it's not like he was completely absent. Um, But it is the sort of the worst performance we've seen from him for a while. And you have the suspension to work with. And you've got the fact that he's now 30 years old. 
you know, there's a lot of reasons to kind of be a little bit concerned, but I think he's a classic example of like, let's give him the benefit of the doubt here. Like there's just too much of a body of work of him being amazing to determine that after half a year and one injury, well, that's, it's done now. Like we're never seeing that guy again. The, uh, the eternal debate of Joe Burrow versus Justin Herbert for now we have Joe Burrow just above Justin Herbert. They are back-to-back as far as quarterbacks go, but we have Burrow at 27. We have Herbert at 32. What separates them for you, Sam? Or should we just not even really? They're not really separated, but there's still a great debate as far as the two guys that were in year two last year, both fantastic. Burrow ended up as our highest-graded quarterback by the end of the season, but Herbert's two years are probably a little bit better than Burrow. So uh, it's going to be an awesome battle between these two guys going forward. I don't know if they are the the two years a little bit better than than Burrow. I think the point the the point with that would be we had Joe Burrow ranked ahead of Justin Herbert coming out. Now, okay, it turns out we were way low on Justin Herbert relative to um, to to what he was going to be, as were a lot of people. But we thought uh, Joe Burrow was a phenomenal prospect, one of the best quarterback prospects we've seen. And we haven't seen anything different to say that that was wrong, right? Burrow was an incredible prospect, was really good as a rookie despite not a lot of help around him, and then was absolutely incredible last season coming off that knee injury with Jamar Chase, takes the Bengals to the Super Bowl. And as good as Justin Herbert has been, has he been better than that? I would argue that he hasn't been. His, you know, We know now that his physical tools are better. His arm certainly is better than, than Joe Burrow's, but... On a throw-by-throw basis, I'm not sure you can definitively say he is or he has been better than Joe Burrow at this point. Uh, look, I'm all, what I'm saying is it's close, right, at least, because Herbert was better as a rookie, uh, graded better, and had a similarly bad situation, right, as far as the offensive line goes. As much as we've spent on this podcast and other people have talking about the Bengals' offensive line, the Chargers were just as bad as far as pass protection goes in 2020 when both quarterbacks were rookies. The other part about Herbert that's a little different from Burrow, there was a point, right, we keep talking about, hey, they took the they took the the they handed Burrow the keys essentially to the offense late last year. I think Herbert's had the keys handed to him a little bit longer than Joe Burrow when it comes to the Chargers offense, right? And you get to that that week 18 Raiders game where Herbert just has to convert fourth down after fourth down and it's just the ball is in Herbert's hands. I'm not saying Burrow can't do that. I'm saying it's close between these guys. I'm still in the Joe Burrow camp, man. I'm I'm in that camp that I think I would take him a smidge ahead of Justin Herbert. I'm just saying it's close. And if you want to make an argument that the first two years of Justin Herbert have been better than the first two years of Joe Burrow, I think it could. I think it's close. Wins above replacement. Herbert's got it because Burrow got hurt. Right. Um, you can't hold that against Burrow. I'm just saying it is a close battle and it's awesome it's going to be awesome to see these guys you know moving forward i also think it's great for the nfl uh to reiterate what i've said a thousand times here on this podcast it, i don't want to say it looked bleak at quarterback but it did look like the quarterback situation in the nfl certainly going through a transition we didn't have a whole bunch of superstars to replace the brady's and rogers and breezes of the world who were moving on at some point uh but now we might right we have josh allen we have burrow and herbert and have others who are ready uh, to take the mantle, and, and I think that's great for the NFL. Yeah, I, I mean, I, absolutely. Those two guys have been incredible. Um, you're right, war 
Herbert edges it over those two years, but PFF grade, it's still Burrow, both in terms of yep. overall and passing grade. So my point with the two of them and why you would rank Burrow over Herbert is simply as good as Herbert's been, I, I haven't seen anything to say that he's definitively better. It's close, at which point stick with the, the prior body of work. Uh, two other fascinating names in the 20s. Uh, we already mentioned Micah Parsons. Uh, he comes in at 29. Uh, after an incredible rookie season where he did it all, literally switching between linebacker and edge defender, not in the way that Khalil Mack did for the all-pro vote, but in a legitimate way, played two different positions. And speaking of playing multiple positions, you have Debo Samuel coming in at number 28, wide receiver slash running back. He just became the runner, you know, the running back for the uh, for the 49ers down the stretch last year and was incredible at that. So uh, I love when we have these types of players, guys who have a unique skill set that teams are tapping into and they maintain elite play, right? I mean, to, there's a there's a certain safety in the NFL who is uh, gets more hype than our production grades would, you know, would care to give him. That's Minka Fitzpatrick. He does. Uh, you know, maybe he expanded his role a little bit. He's playing in the box. He's playing in the slot. He's playing deep, but the production doesn't always match that, right? It's good for the defense. Maybe it helps other players, you know, play uh, to their strengths. But when you have, but players like Debo and Micah Parsons, they're not just switching positions and, and adjusting to game plans week to week and giving their respective coaches more options. They're doing it at an elite level. I think that is what makes Debo Samuel and Micah Parsons really, really special and why they're in the top 30 here. Yeah, there's always something incredible to watch about unique players. Um, and that it's a little bit like what we were talking about with Vita Vea before. There's just something fun about watching a guy that that is unique, that nobody else can emulate, that that nobody else can replicate. And so far... That's kind of what we're seeing from Debo Samuel and Micah Parsons. These guys are rare. They, they do things differently than other people. And, you know, we were trying to think during the season of what is the, what's the best sort of prior comparison to what Micah Parsons is doing. And, you know, you can go back and find the time when Von Miller was sort of used as a hybrid player and Denver would play him as an off-the-ball sort of uh, – on off-the-ball linebacker on – you know, first two downs, and then he would kick down to be the edge rusher in passing situations. But even that is different because Parsons was kind of asked to do it like game to game. It wasn't like you play a, a dual role during the game. You know, sometimes you're going to be on the line. Sometimes you're going to be playing off the ball like, like Von Miller was. It was like, no, week five, we don't have any edge rushers, so we need you to play defensive end. Week six, somebody's back healthy, so you're going to be back playing off the ball linebacker again. Like I can't think of a guy that's that's flipped between two positions like that during the course of a season. And then Debo, like we are in legitimately uncharted territory in terms of what he's doing with that hybrid role in Kyle Shanahan's offense. And yeah, we've seen players again sort of flip between the two a little bit, but nobody, I think, to the level of competence that Debo is doing right now. Like he's everybody's focusing on the running part of his game because that's kind of what makes him uh, unique. But like, he's a really good wide receiver. If he just, if he had took away all of the running parts, right, which is kind of what he's lobbying for almost, if you take away all of that and say it's not a factor at all, he would be one of the best wide receivers in the league. And now you add in the fact that you can then put him in the backfield and he runs as well as most running backs out there. And it, that becomes a cheat code for an offense because defense is can't deal with that 
Yeah, it's just like Micah Parsons, where it's on one play, you could see Debo take a handoff like a running back, which is a specific skill set running between the tackles with power. And then the next play, the very next play, line up outside as a wide receiver and run a route as well as any receiver in the league and get open over the middle of the field and catch the ball. And then you just throw him a screen the next play and he takes it to the house, right? I mean, uh, the fact that we're talking about Jimmy Garoppolo as such a productive player, statistically, uh, you owe a lot to George Kittle, the tight end, but you owe a ton to Debo Samuel and what he's been able to do for that Niners offense. Uh, we've got some, we have unwritten rules here at PFF, one of which is the Bosa brothers need to rank next to each other. Uh, because it, we look, we, we, we make it a point not to, you know, overdo it when it comes to same school scouting and brother scouting and say, well, this guy reminds me of that guy because they're brothers or because whatever, but the Boses, they make it really tough to separate themselves grade wise, production wise, starting at Ohio state, nearly identical careers minus maybe Nick Bosa's had a few more injuries, right? That's the only difference between Nick and Joey Bosa to this point. Um, so Joey Bosa comes in at 25 this year. Nick Bosa comes in at 26. Yeah, it is ridiculous how close they managed to rank in terms of grading on such a consistent basis. Um, for their entire careers, Joey Bosa has a, a PFF grade of 91.5, and Nick Bosa is 90.8. So we're talking a combined 6,000 snaps worth of play. And they're right in the same kind of ballpark. And it's even distributed in the same kind of way. Like, both guys are above 90 as pass rushers. Both guys are sort of 75 to 79 in terms of run defense. Like, they have been almost the same player in terms of a, a grading distribution throughout their entire college and pro careers. Now, obviously, when you watch them play, they're different players sort of stylistically and how, how they actually win and all those kinds of things. But it's just... It is insane, like how close they managed to rank from an efficiency and uh, effectiveness standpoint on over any period of time. And we don't do this with, say, the Watt brothers, right? I mean, JJ and TJ right. Watt are completely different players, different body types, uh, different positions, essentially, the way they align. Um, and different career path, right? T.J. Watt started a little bit slower. J.J. was almost immediately dominant as a rookie, much like Aaron Donald, and then second year, uh, otherworldly. Uh, T.J. Watt took a few years before he got up into that otherworldly area. So it's not as it's not all brothers have the same style, right? It's not like that. Even if T.J. and J.J. are both very, very good players, but the Bosa's in particular win similarly, produce similarly. It's been it's been amazing to watch these last few years. I also think there's a separation in terms of the levels they reached. Like the Bo the Bosa brothers have basically reached the same peak. Um, right. J.J. Watt, I think, reached a significantly higher peak than T.J. Watt has reached even now. And Watt's, you know, what T.J. Watt's, level right now is kind of defensive player of the year right that's how high a peak jj watt reached that it was higher than that defensive player of the year level that tj watt has been at you know for the last year or so all right other guys in the 20s we have tyreek hill at 24 now the dolphins receiver we've discussed tyreek plenty this offseason offensive tackle david bakhtiari of the packers at 23 and another packer jair alexander at 22 when you look at the Packers last year they didn't have Bakhtiari and Alexander for most of the season and the Packers were still awesome right I mean we're still we're talking about a Packers team 
where it doesn't feel great, right? We've talked about this a lot this offseason. You know, you lose Devontae Adams. It doesn't feel great in Green Bay because they've got one of the biggest question marks of any receiving groups in the NFL. And you don't want that as Aaron Rodgers gets older. But we're talking about two elite players coming back this season for the Packers. Jair was the best corner in the league in 2020 by PFF grade. And then Bakhtiari has been the best pass protecting tackle in the league since Joe Thomas retired. So maybe we're sleeping on the Packers a little bit, forgetting Jair, Bakhtiari, both coming back this season. It is kind of incredible what they did last year when you think about the players that they were missing through injury. Like, we've talked a lot about this stars and scrubs approach that the Rams have have, uh, been undertaking for the last few years. And part of the, the logic is... Yeah, it's great surrounding yourself with, you know, investing all the money in Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey and, you know, the, the, the really important players at the most important positions. But it only works if those guys stay healthy. And the Rams for the last few years have had this incredible run of guys not getting hurt. Green Bay, if you look at the year before, 2020, so their best five players would have been Aaron Rodgers, Devontae Adams, David Bakhtiari, Jair Alexander, um, and Zadarius Smith. And we were saying, I, I certainly made the point heading into the year that Rodgers, Jair Alexander, and Devontae Adams all had career years, essentially, in 2020. If any combination of those three takes a step back, that's a real sort of serious degree of regression that you need to overcome somewhere else. Well, Rodgers and, and Adams backed up what they did, but they lost three of the other guys, right? So Jair Alexander, David Bakhtiari, and Darius Smith effectively didn't play for them last year. Now, they all you know, had a few snaps here or there, got back or whatever, but three of their five most important players from, the, from 2020 effectively weren't relevant to Green Bay in 2021, and they were still you know, one of the best teams in the NFL and a real force heading into the postseason. That's, that's kind of crazy. All right, let's go through uh, as we creep closer to the top 10. Uh, we do have running backs on here, Sam. Nick Chubb is on the list in the 40s. Dalvin Cook is on the list. Jonathan Taylor in there at number 21. And then Derrick Henry in there at number 16, I believe it is. Yep, 16 for Derrick Henry. Uh, how do you separate some of these running backs, Sam, and, and, and where you know these guys should be ranking? Henry finally got hurt for the first time last year. But as far as being able to take over a game. I don't think we've seen anybody do it like him over the last couple of years. And Jonathan Taylor looks like he's ready to become the best pure runner in the NFL if he's not already there. Yeah, I mean, Taylor was incredible last year. He was the best running back in the league last season. Um, We've sort of shown how, yeah, look, running backs generally are a product of their environment in terms of the blocking and all those kinds of things. But Taylor was so good at maximizing whatever space that created for him. So he would get the five yards that was blocked for him. And then he would turn that five into 25 by making a couple of guys miss and stiff arming somebody to the ground and all those kinds of things. So I think Taylor was as good as anybody in the league, but I think it would be a mistake based off one injury. The first one, essentially we've ever seen to Derrick Henry to forget what he was doing up until that point, which is legitimately make us question all of those rules we know about running backs and their relationship to offense and production and blocking and all those kinds of things. Like right up until Derrick Henry was, was hurt. We were essentially asking the question of like, was Derrick Henry actually the driving force behind everything that turned good in Tennessee? 
you know, conventional wisdom would say that was Ryan Tannehill, the changing quarterback, and all those things that are not running back related. But Derrick Henry was so freaky, you were saying it might honestly have been him providing that ability the whole way, and then finally a quarterback came along that was capable of taking advantage of that opportunity. So he got one injury, he, you know, missed half the year. The injury is not supposed to be something that is a long-term problem for him. Ergo, I think you assume that Derrick Henry comes back and is still one of the best players in the league. A couple other things I want to point out here. There are a few battles at positions, right, where the fan bases like to like to get into it. And, and, and internally here at PFF, we have to debate them year over year. So you have th- players like a, a guard. Uh, Quentin Nelson comes in at 11, but Zach Martin comes in at nine, right? I mean, there was a point where we thought Quint- now, last year Quentin Nelson was fourth on this entire list. And, you know, he dropped a little bit because he came, you know, got banged up and wasn't as good last season. So I think there's a battle for the best guard in the league. The other battle that we've seen through the years is a tight end, right? Trying to separate Travis Kelsey and George Kittle because Kelsey has pretty much maintained his consistency. Even if he's slightly lost a step, it doesn't always, it doesn't really show up on the field. He has that, like the, the play in overtime against the Chargers. Was it overtime when he just weaved through the defense and, you know, had the walk-off win for the Chiefs. I mean, Kelsey still has it. We have him at 10 and Kittle at 20. So we're showing a little bit of separation between uh, Kelsey and Kittle right now where that's been flipped before. We've got Zach Martin above Quentin Nelson. These are these are position battles, I would say. Miles Garrett at edge. He's at 12. TJ Watts at 7. These are all position battles, I think, year over year. Uh, can flip, but if you're just into who the best players are, these are these are fun ones to watch because they're always close, right, at these specific positions. Yeah, and the, the Kelsey thing is tricky because he's reached the age now where you have to start expecting decline somewhere, right? And it's a case of when does it come? How hard does it hit? And this is part of um, this is part of what makes the, the Tyree Kill trade interesting because it's not like Travis Kelsey is you know, in his late 20s, where you can budget right. like another three or four years of, of extremely high-end play. Rob Gronkowski has retired twice now, and he's 10 months older than Travis Kelsey. Like, Travis That's Kelsey crazy. is essentially the same age as Rob Gronkowski, and Gronk is now in his second retirement. Like, okay, Travis Kelsey has not had the kind of injuries to deal with that Gronk has had throughout his career, but the idea that, like, we're going to see Kelsey continue to be the best tight end in the NFL or just this incredible unstoppable force for much longer, I think is it would be naive to expect it. Even if, you know, even in this landscape of guys, you know, pushing their careers ever deeper into their thirties and all those kinds of things, the guy will be 33 during this season. And that's a position that takes a lot of wear and tear, even for a guy that hasn't had a lot of injuries. I don't know. At some point you have to expect the incredible level that, that Travis Kelsey has been setting to start to dwindle. And that, I, and again, again, it makes it sort of tricky where you rank a guy in this list. A receiver is a good matchup, too, with you get Cooper Cup up there at 13. You have Justin Jefferson at, at 17. I mentioned Tyree Kill in the 20s. Uh, I'm still on board saying if I'm starting a team, it's probably Tyree Kill because I think the impacts that he has. But just to reiterate what Cooper Cup did, the yards, the touchdowns, the clutch touchdowns, being Matthew Stafford's guy, right? As much as we talk about, you know, quarterbacks elevate teams, but also elite wide receivers elevate teams. 
Cooper Cup helped elevate Matthew Stafford to that best season of his career, right? So it goes both ways. And, you know, we're giving Cooper Cup proper credit here, 13th on this list, right ahead of Jalen Ramsey, his teammate with the Rams. Yeah, I mean, the only guy ahead of him in terms of wide receivers is Devontae Adams, who has done effectively that. Okay, he didn't do the the triple crown, the the insane level of, of total production that Cooper Cup did, but Devontae Adams has been playing kind of at that level for a few years now. And I think, again, that just buys you a certain um, credit in the bank that one year of, of Cooper Cup's production isn't going to get you all the way there. But, yeah, for Cooper Cup to rank higher than you know, most of the players on this list shows you the kind of respect that, that one season generated out of him. The other, there's a bunch of guys in the teens, I think, that are interesting to talk about that are kind of the underrated area of this list. Joel Batonio has been one of the best guards in the league throughout his entire career. But again, there's this whole world of guys that seem to be stepping it up once they get to 30. You know, that's when they start to play their best football. Joel Batonio has played, was incredible last season, right up there with Zach Martin. Um, And then one behind him, Cameron Hayward, same same story. Like he got to 30 and then flipped a switch and started playing the best football of his career like uh, Calais Campbell did before him. All of his best seasons seem to come after 30. Defensive linemen in particular, those interior guys. And this, by the way, if you're, you know, I, I don't think this is going to be relevant given that we're already hearing retirement talk from him. But the idea of like, how long could Aaron Donald do this? Right? If you start looking at some of these guys that have only started playing their best football once they hit the age of 30, like Calais Campbell and Cameron Hayward became arguably the second best interior defensive lineman in the league once they reach that age. And that is kind of incredible to think of what Donald could do if he decides he wants to have, you know, a Merlin Olsen type of career where he's just hanging around for 15 years. It's kind of like offensive tackle, right? You just see guys that are, that are still doing it even after injuries or after just getting older, whatever it might be. Uh, we're always trying to figure out who that second best interior defensive lineman is behind Aaron Donald. That's been, uh, that's been a different guy every couple of years. It was Fletcher Cox for a couple of years with the Eagles. As he's gotten older, it's been Chris Jones of the Chiefs versus Cameron Hayward, essentially, right? It's been those two guys uh, who both put up elite type of grades. Now, Chris Jones, grade-wise, is going to be a little bit lower last year because he did play on the edge a little bit, right? He did play out of position the first uh, chunk of the season. But we have Chris Jones at 15, Cameron Hayward, at 19, uh, you know, you can debate those two guys, you know, as far as who's the, the best guy behind, be, behind Donald, by the way, you know, spoiler alert, you know, Donald's going to be number one again. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's try, trying to figure out the third, the second interior defensive lineman, the third guard, right? No disrespect to Joel Batonio, but we've had him behind Zach Martin and Quentin Nelson for a few years now, but Batonio was outstanding last season so who's the third guard behind those top two guys um those position battles are fun to to unpack year over year i, I think um get good seeing what chris jones did last year i think probably doesn't get enough credit um the idea that kansas city ran into the season with one of the most bizarre personnel de- decisions you have seen in recent years they're like oh we've got we seem to have quite a lot of guys we like in the interior we don't have any edge rushers we think are any good Let's take our best interior player and just ask him to play edge rusher, even though he's like a six foot six, three hundred and ten pound defensive tackle. That's our best combination of all these players. So they legitimately took a prototypical 
three technique interior, you know, pass rushing type of defensive tackle and just said, hey, give it a shot playing on the edge. Like, just play edge rusher, see how it goes. Like, you, you're our best option. This is how we believe is the best way of deploying all of our resources. And, okay, it, it didn't work in terms of the problem was not that Chris Jones wasn't a good edge rusher. It was that you no longer had Chris Jones on the inside, right? And Chris Jones on the inside is the next best thing to Aaron Donald in terms of interior pass rush. So they end up saying, actually, you know what? It's a net loss. Let's move him back. But lost in all that is they were kind of right in terms of he was their best edge rusher. Like Chris Jones at 300 pounds was the best edge rusher that Kansas City had last season. To, that, 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 right. is, that, that is true is, is ridiculous. And for him to be able to, you know, do what was involved in doing that, I don't know how much weight he lost, but it was, you know, probably reasonably significant to take that shot heading into the season. And then midseason, move back onto the interior without, you know, the ability to kind of, let's put 20 pounds back on tomorrow. Like, he just had to go play undersized for relative to what his usual playing weight is and continue to dominate on the interior. I mean, that's... That's not normal. Like, that is a crazy performance from Chris Jones that probably doesn't get enough respect. And I like the idea of taking an interior guy and moving him outside just to mix things up as a matchup type of play, right? Because tackles aren't used to facing 300-pounders off the edge with that type of power plus quickness, but not as a full-time move. So I think there's still a world where Jones can move around, create those mismatches, win on the edge when he needs to. I mean, again, Donald does that, right? There's times where Donald just straight up wins to the edge against a tackle because you just create some mismatches every now and again during the game and give it, it, it's, it's like a counter punch, right? Because tackles get to see something different and it makes it a little bit more difficult to block. Yeah. And honestly, if they hadn't played um, Baltimore reasonably early in the season, I think that experiment could have gone on a lot longer than it was, than it had any reason to do than it had any business going on. But when they placed, when they faced the Ravens, um, I think it was week four and, you know, Baltimore with their read option looks and all those kinds of things. Like they were able to essentially option Chris Jones like in space, you know, on the edge with nobody either side of him for like 10 yards and Lamar Jackson and the running backs like splitting his attention. And you're like, oh, come on. That's just like, that's not but, fair. And that's not a Chris Jones thing. That's no, just I'm saying like you can't. Right? They schemed the that. best player out of the game and the Chiefs kind of lets them do it because they had him on the edge. Well, I'm saying, yeah, from from Kansas City's perspective, like you can't put that guy in that position. That's just not fair. Like, right. He's your best interior player. You can't put a 310 pound guy in space playing the option. That's just that's absurd. So I, but I think that was what sort of made them realize you know what, this is silly. Like, this this isn't going to work. If, like, Baltimore was able to option this guy repeatedly and it was just, it, it was unfair. Like, that's, he should not, we shouldn't have put him in that position and it didn't work, so let's kick him back inside and figure it out from there. But, again, like, the fact, the fact that he was put in that position at all, it's not like that was a surprise, right? Baltimore didn't roll out, like, a freaky new offense for that game. They spent the entire week, you know, in the film room, in meeting rooms, knowing that was coming and going, no, no, Chris, Chris can handle it. Like that. I think that speaks to how like absurd he is as an athlete in the top 10. Now you've got, uh, it looks like you ranked the quarterbacks based off their, uh, their golfing acumen here. Uh, Aaron Rodgers comes in third, Patrick Mahomes, fifth, Josh Allen, sixth and Tom Brady, eighth. 
Looks like you focused a little bit more on uh, on golfing, maybe here. But you're expecting the the youngsters, Mahomes and Allen. This is the year you're you're calling disrespect to Tom Brady, ranking him fourth among the quarterbacks, and this is the year that he drops off, right, Sam? Well, look, back to back MVPs for Aaron Rodgers. It's you know it's pretty tough to come up with a two year sample that doesn't have Rodgers uh, as good as anybody. Um, so I think he's reasonably in that position of being the number one quarterback. Um, Josh Allen backed up his crazy breakout year with another one. I think he's right up there as well. The Mahomes one is tricky because Mahomes did not play as well as we know Patrick Mahomes can play last year. Wasn't even close, right? His PFF grade was like 80, which is fine. Like it's a pretty good spot for most quarterbacks, but it's not the otherworldly back-to-back-to-back 90-plus grades we saw to essentially start his career. Um But again, it's like because we saw three years of him not just playing like the best quarterback in the NFL, but like breaking like Aaron Donald and J.J. Watt and, you know, some of these other guys breaking what you thought was Derrick Henry, invalidating rules, you know, things that you know from data that happen consistently year to year or things that you know are possible or not possible. You saw so much of it with Mahomes that makes you go. Maybe he is just completely different. Maybe that maybe the rules don't apply to this guy. Like the way that the way he makes those throws. He makes the the Brett Favre throws that would get Brett Favre into trouble, Mahomes makes, right? And completes. And you're like, oh, that's just Patrick Mahomes. He literally breaks the rules for quarterback play. So because he did that for three straight years and then had, you know, one relatively down season. And by the way, that relative down season for him including the playoffs, is still 48 touchdowns. Like, you know, we're still talking some pretty ridiculous stuff here. But I think that buys him a lot of benefit of the doubt, you know? Um, And certainly still puts him inside the top 10. And then Brady becomes the interesting one because Tom Brady is still playing like the best quarterback in the NFL despite being 45. And... I don't know that I have a good justification for not ranking him ahead of those other guys, except that at some point, it can't. At some point, he can't keep doing this. He's always interesting to watch, like, just early in training camp, just to see, is is the arm still there? Is the velocity still there? You know, obviously, to this point, it has been. I will say, for all four quarterbacks, there's, there's, a, there's enough turnover with their playmakers that, you know, they're going to have to probably do a little bit more. Obviously, the most obvious one is Aaron Rodgers, the number three player on this list, losing the number four player on this list, Devontae Adams. Right. Discussed that plenty. Mahomes loses Tyreek and has a whole different receiving core. We've discussed that plenty. And then a little bit more subtly, Josh Allen losing Cole Beasley and uh, not having that, you know, he's had John Brown or Emmanuel Sanders, this other outside receiver that's been pretty dependable. He's got to replace them with Gabriel Davis, who, again, had, had – has been productive, but in a lesser role. So he's got to de- continue the development of Gabriel Davis as his number two. And Brady loses Gronk. Um, it's not that we haven't seen Brady without Gronk before. Uh, he's won a Super Bowl without Gronk in 2016, which was probably Brady's best season, throw for throw, you know, g- from start to finish. Um, and it's not that Brady doesn't have other playmakers to throw to, right? They add Russell Gage to Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. Um, they have a good group of playmakers, but you lose Gronk. You lose that. A safety valve that Brady has always had, or he's had at least for the ten, the last ten years or so of his career. Um, so all of these quarterbacks have slight adjustments, um, some major adjustments in their receiving core that I think will help unpack this a little bit as well. 
Yeah, it's one of those things where um, because quarterback is so dependent on everything else around them, it might, you know, this, this list essentially is trying to isolate just how good is that player, independent of everything else. But it isn't independent of everything else when we see their actual performance on the field. So Rodgers in particular, I would be surprised if Rodgers finished the year as the number one graded quarterback of those four because he doesn't have any receivers, right? And that has to have a negative effect on him. And I would imagine it's a negative effect that would overtake any advantage he has over Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, and Tom Brady, who are all phenomenal quarterbacks. Um, Similarly, Patrick Mahomes might not play like the Patrick Mahomes we saw for that three-year stretch because all of a sudden Tyreek Hill isn't there. And as much as Travis Kelsey is capable of doing the ad-libbing stuff and you know getting finding space and making plays... We just talked about how he's the same age as Gronk and may slow down at some point. But also, there's a difference between having two of those guys and having one of those guys. And the number of plays where you know it breaks down, Tyreek Hill makes one move, breaks three yards open, and a DB is never getting that three yards back as long as he keeps running. And Mahomes finds him, and it's a big play. Those aren't there anymore, right? Like Travis Kelsey is not operating in the same areas of the field as Tyreek Hill was. So that particular play might be completely off the table for Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs. And those are, those are sort of margins that are going to be left on the table. Um, I'm reasonably confident that Tom Brady and Josh Allen will sort of maintain the levels they've been at, even with that turnover in, in personnel that you talked about, because I think they're still in, good, in a good place. Um, you know, with the addition of Russell Gage and with the receivers that the Bills have ready to step up. So I think those two guys are probably going to end up where we think they will. But it wouldn't shock me if Rodgers and Mahomes, you know, do have relatively uh, lower grades than, than they should if they had the kind of perfect situation around them. All right, wrapping up the top 50, the PFF 50, Trent Williams at number two and then Aaron Donald number one, as we had mentioned. Trent Williams, he's now been the highest graded tackle all over the place, 2013, 2016, and then back-to-back, 2020 and 21, highest grade we've ever seen for, from a tackle last season. Trent Williams, outstanding pass protector, and just a joy to watch in the run game, Sam, the way he absolutely destroys NFL players but also gets out in space, gets linebackers. Trent Williams can do it all. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit on the offensive line show that we did last week with, with Jeff Schwartz. Um, like, the stuff that Trent Williams does is crazy. Um, he has ridiculous movement skills for a guy that size. But again, he's got that Vita Vea, rare, freakish, brute strength, even against guys that are monstrously strong, right? Like there were, ta- there were these plays that I saw on tape where he's taking Randy Gregory. And okay, Randy Gregory is not, you know, the most imposing run defender in the world. But the dude is like 255 pounds. It's not like Randy Gregory is a small human being. Grabs hold of Randy Gregory throws him to the inside and just like crumples him to the ground like that's the kind of thing you would expect Trent Williams to do to me not to a guy that outweighs me by 70 pounds ish right like that that's the kind of strength this dude has and and in addition to you know the technique and the quickness and the movement skills and all those kinds of things so I don't know that we'll see another offensive tackle season like the one that Trent Williams had last year but he's that's the kind of level he's playing at right now. Basically unprecedented. Have we discussed Aaron Donald enough on this show? No. In general. Not this episode, but our show in general. I mean, the guy, again, he does it all. 
um, wins from, you know, look, there, there were times when they brought in Wade Phillips, who runs a, a three, four, right. He runs more odd fronts. Um, they, they've had Brandon Staley. They, they, they've had Raheem Morris, every defensive coordinator and Donald's role has changed through the years, right? I mean, he is a prototypical three technique. He is the guy that the scouts say you put him over the guard. You just let him be quick off the ball, beat the guard, get into the backfield. And that's what he did for the majority of his uh, early in his career. But as I said earlier on the show too, you can line up Donald as like a wide nine edge defender against good tackles. You can line him up uh, not to two gap, but you can line him head up on a tackle and let him just, you can really line him up all over the place. And you don't think of Aaron Donald in that way because he's just a prototype of a certain position on the defensive line, but he is used all over the place. Uh, and then you see the impact that he had in the Super Bowl. And, and sometimes, and I've even seen it in the chat a little bit here, sometimes people say, well, this defensive lineman disappears or this guy you know, doesn't show up. Uh, I think you have to understand what the baseline is for defensive linemen. They can't literally win every single rep, right? A, a, a good win percentage for a tackle rushing the passer is about 20%. Uh, so that's one out of five. Um, and Donald always eclipses that. He eclipses it for edge defenders, which usually they win at a higher rate. A good win percentage really for an interior defensive lineman is like 10 to 12%, and Donald destroys that. Um, and he's disruptive in the run game, uh, despite maybe some of the rumors that have been out there over the last couple of years. Donald, he does it all. He does it in multiple positions, and no signs of him slowing down. Yeah, I mean, so the thing I think people need to realize when you start looking at that kind of pass rush win rate and all those kinds of things and how, how many plays you expect a defensive or a pass rusher to make is how many plays in the modern day NFL are effectively plays where you can't really win. You know what I mean? Like they're designed to get the ball out or get it gone or do something that means that a guy, a pass rusher is not really going to be a factor in this play. And you know, you can't, so you can't just run an offense where the ball comes out, you know, one step, one second, every single play, right? There's always a balance, but there's enough of those in, in a game that those are reps that no pass rusher in the world can win. Now, they can win in terms of you beat your blocker, but you're never going to get pressure on that play because the ball's long gone. Similarly, you know, there's a bunch of plays where it's, whether it's RPOs, whether it's sort of weird play-action plays where the, the pocket has been moved and all those kinds of things. Again, they're sort of designed so that you're not really rushing. You're, not, you're playing the run, and then only once that breaks down or once you figure out that it's, it's a, a pass play, are you able to actually pivot towards rushing the passer and, and changing that up. So there's a whole bunch of these plays where no pass rusher is going to win if you focus on just the ones where there's an actual opportunity to win Donald is so far beyond what anybody else does it is mind-blowing and the other element here is look how long he's been in the league for like people underestimate the league's capacity to adjust to incredibly good players right it's I don't want to say it's easy but guys come in and sort of shock the league in year one or very early on quite regularly, right? Because it's something new and something new is, you know, the element of surprise. It's very difficult to stop something that you don't really know is coming. And Jamar Chase, I think, is a great example of that this year, right? Chase came in and particularly from watching his tape, nothing really like blows your mind. And this is why I like there was a debate. Is Jamar Chase the best receiver in this class? I don't know. Like, maybe he doesn't, you know, what does he not do great? 
Jamar Chase came in, and because of that, everyone underestimated him. And only once you saw him for a while, it's like, oh, this is this is totally different. Like he's incredible. And I thought I could roll. I could thought I could, you know, Marlon Humphrey. I don't I keep picking on Marlon Humphrey, but it's the most obvious example of this. You could tell that Humphrey just poor Marlon Humphrey on just, that play, man. He just didn't anticipate it, right? He was like, I can yeah. get up, I can press this guy at the line. It's not a problem. And then Chase just wrecked him, and like destroyed him off the line then ran away from him you know huge play and from that like that was a classic example of like marlon humphrey will never play him the same way again right because it's different and he understands it's different now but he needed that to happen to him to understand how different it is aaron donald has been doing this since 2014 and teams have had years to to sit there and analyze how do we stop this from happening what do we do? What are the schematic things we can do? How many of these sort of different areas can we push the envelope on and, and change the dynamic of the number of plays where we're letting Aaron Donald get one-on-one reps against our offensive linemen? And he talked about it himself. Like the number of – he has to be so good with watching film so that he can anticipate the, the random occasions during the course of the game where he's actually going to get a one-on-one block – because if he does, he knows he'll win and get pressure. But he also knows that he's almost never seeing those anymore. So the fact that Donald is still racking up 100 pressures in a season, you know, with a pass rushing grade of 93, a run defense grade in the high 80s, that he's able to do all this, you know, with almost 10 years of tape of how teams should be stopping him is absolutely ridiculous. Like, it's one thing to do it and to hit that level – and to be at that that kind of player ever, right? That's an insane achievement on its own. To be able to keep doing it, no matter what teams throw at you to try and slow you down, I think is what really at this point is sort of cementing Donald's legacy as one of the best ever, is that the league is really good at stopping players from doing that kind of thing, and they have had zero impact on Aaron Donald throughout his entire career. Let me add one more point to that because I, I think what you're saying is a, is an outstanding point. Is the league is good at adjusting to players, right? Um, so f- from that respect, Aaron Donald has been special, right? He he has not slowed down. The other part is the durability aspect of it because the the one player that we can compare Aaron Donald to is JJ Watt, and we've done this before and said, okay, who else has dominated at a similar level? Who else puts up 90-plus grades every single year or grades at the top of their position every single year? It's been J.J. Watt, and he did that from 2012 through 15. That was Watt's second, uh, third, fourth, fifth uh, seasons, right? Uh, But after that point, J.J. Watt had two years where he barely played 400 snaps. Then he came back and played 1,000, graded at 90 again. Then he played 500 snaps. Then he played 1,000 snaps. And then last year, he played 300 snaps. So J.J. Watt had a four-year stretch that was probably as good as anything Aaron Donald has put together in a four-year stretch. But Aaron Donald, but that four-year stretch, essentially, Aaron Donald has done for 10 years, right? I mean, he's basically, or since 2014, nine, nine seasons. Is he's that eight, eight, eight seasons? Years. He's he's exactly doubled J.J. Watt's stretch of, you know, a four-year stretch of dominance. Yes. Uh, so that's the other part, right? If you took J.J. Watt's peak, those four years, very comparable to what Donald's doing in his peak, but you double that and say Donald has done it in, in last year, in playing over a thousand snaps, and it, at a position where you're not, you're supposed to take a break, right? You're supposed to play 700 snaps as a starter, 800 snaps, and and Donald continues to just excel. So, um, 
yeah, man, he's, he's awesome. He's number one on the list. How many times have we had him at number one on the list now? It's actually less than I think it should be, to be honest. It's last the year, last three, 20. four. Well, it's five, the last four years now, right? Five years? Six. Six straight years. Actually, he's been, it's the one on one. He's, uh, he's not been number one at for every It's the one on one where we haven't given him. But this, he's been. But I mean, that's, but that's what it is. Like, it's not like every, because there's seasons, there's individual seasons where some players are better than, you know, than others. Yeah. Like Trent Williams was, had a higher grade than Donald last year, right? right? I mean, that stuff but happens. He, but he's been the number one. He's been the number one player in the PFF 50 as long as we've been running the PFF 50. Right. Because it's a body of work projecting going forward and all that stuff. So congrats again to Aaron Donald. You send him a trophy? No. We sent him a trophy for the actual awards, didn't we? Or did, I don't know. I didn't do that yeah, this year. It so. wasn't my thing. I don't know. But he's got a Super Bowl trophy too, I guess. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't get the PFF awards. Um, anyway, let Sam know. It's not just Sam's list. It's PFFs. But let Sam know where the where you disagree. Do you see uh, at PFF underscore Sam? Do you see we we talked about the Madden ratings on on Monday? Do you see they um, yeah. they sent guys out like they send they do it every year. They send these guys out like this sort of special package. The ninety nine club people, right? Yeah. And I can't remember what it was before, but this year they got like a big you know icy chain with ninety nine on it. You know, like diamonds all That's over awesome. the place. <laughs> it's evidently Madden has a higher budget for these things than we do. <laughs> like we could send we have a out. slick trophy that might or might not may or may not have the player's name on it, but you know, it's cool. It's we good. could send Aaron Donald out something to, you know, celebrate his position at number one of the PFF 50, but I doubt anybody is stumping up the budget for a, you know, a little, little gold chain with diamonds all over it at 50 written on it. Chris, can we open up the budget a little bit? Get a little PFF chain going, please. What if he had double, he had a Madden chain and a PFF chain? Yeah. Yeah, both. Good. Anyway, um, let us know where did we go wrong. It's the PFF 50, the best players heading into the 2022 NFL season. Don't forget, continue to email NFLpodcast at pff.com. Want to hear your bets? What do you want to wager with us for the season? Maybe you want to wager that Aaron Donald won't be the best player in the NFL. That's not strong enough, but those are the types of things we're talking about. Um, Follow us on TikTok, on Twitter. We need more Twitter followers, I think. Twitter at PFF NFL pod. That's where we could do a lot of our communicating. So be sure just click that follow button on Twitter. That's going to be a big one for us. What did you, what did you think about my suggestion that we do the, uh, the tortilla challenge thing? (laughs) You suggested that to me. Yeah. It's I texted it to you. Oh, you don't, you like, you look at your texts and then don't bother replying or or acknowledging them in any way, shape or form. The rock. So you know what? For some reason, I thought Kelly sent that to me. Okay. Well, you can do so it you're saying well, we should right? do this Dwayne Johnson versus Kevin Hart, the way they did the tortilla challenge? Yeah, well, this is it's a, it's a thing. It's out there it's on the kid, TikTok. Yeah, the kids are doing it, yeah, right? Yeah, on the TikTok. The, so yeah. for anyone that hasn't seen it, you, to, you both people like take a mouthful of water, and then you have to slap each other with a tortilla, and the first person like spit the stuff out loses. Uh, but The Rock and, and Kevin Hart did this on whatever like movie publicity junket they're on right now. It was pretty funny. I, I think it would be quite funny to see us do it, particularly as, you know, it's me, you know, swinging upwards by a foot and a half. Oh, man. It looked, it, I mean, that's what, that was Kevin Hart against The Rock. It looked like yeah. he, The Rock said he may have punctured his eardrum. Not ready for that. I think he was being so, facetious. I don't think he I was know, actually, of course he was, you know, but serious. I'm just saying, it, it looked like it hurt. Yeah. We should probably, we should probably do it, huh? I just think it'd be pretty funny. Yeah. Right, maybe maybe we, that'll send us help us go viral on the uh, TikTok machine. Yeah, it's also cheap, which you know helps out with the budget. Yeah, so Chris could probably 
we could probably expense the tortillas, maybe not the uh, PFF 50 right. number one chain. Not, not the custom diamond chain, yeah. yeah. Probably fits our budget. I'll consider it, Sam. I'll consider it. Excellent. Tortilla challenge. All right. Anything else before we wrap it up? No, I think we're good. PFF 40 still live, 40% off. Yep. PFF.com. Go check it out. 40% off any PFF subscription. PFF 40. There's an app coming out soon. Go yes. check out uh, the PFF Twitter account. We'll have more information there. We have we, They've been working on an app for a long time here. We're going to be revealing that. Very cool. Um, as early as today uh, to uh, a little beta version and everything for people to try out. So go check that out as well. That's been uh, on the to-do list for basically 10 years. Yeah. There we are. So thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll be back again Monday with more PFF NFL podcast. <laughs>